The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, Shakespeare never blotted out a line, said two of his friends as they introduced the first folio to the public. And so we think, ah, yes, genius was flowing from the heavens right to the man's mind and from there to his fingers and to the pen and the ink onto the page. Such is the nature of genius. It's Paul McCartney waking up with the song Yesterday in his head, fully formed. It's why Mozart could, it's how Mozart could be so prolific, and Keats and so many others. They were thinking art. They were thinking perfect art. It's how great art must come to be. But is that really so? First of all, was it even true? Did Shakespeare truly put words on the page in some indelible way as if divinely inspired? If not, what has that meant to the rest of us who are trying to understand greatness? And what about greatness has to be so self-assured right from the start? What about the greatness of revision or the indications of hesitancy, second thoughts, better ideas, the process of perfecting? Can there be genius residing in those areas as well? Our guest today has spent some time studying old manuscripts and thinking a lot about these ideas. He joins us today to tell us about that process. Adar Noor Desai and the Poetics of Discomposition today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. We are enjoying this new year. Here in February, we are and. We're enjoying this little format. Maybe you've noticed how the shows have been lately. A guest plus a My Last Book snippet. And some people have said, hey, Jack, just you ramble too much. Get straight to the guests. Well, we aim to please. We've been rambling less. And for those of you who are saying, hey, Jack, we kind of miss the old rambling style. Or the episodes where you don't have a guest at all or just have Mike. Well, stay tuned. We'll have some more episodes like that for you as well. We've done almost 600 episodes. Now we'd like to think there's room at the party for every kind of episode. I did take a few down for one reason or another. <laughs> Those episodes are like the, the, they're not at the party. They're like the, the smokers we sent out to the patio. But there's room inside here for everyone else. Maybe you've been through every single episode and you've heard some of the stranger ones. Well, this one is not. Welcome back to the light of day, to the to the sunshine and rainbows. Our sunshine today is at our Noor Desai. We'll hear from him soon. And our rainbow will be Lara Vetter, biographer of the poet Hilda Doolittle, a.k.a. H.D. We'll ask Lara our usual special question about the last book she will ever read. But first, let's dive into the world of blotted lines. Okay, joining me now is Adar Noor Desai, a professor of literature at Bard College in the hamlet of Annandale-on-Hudson, New York. His research interests include Shakespeare and his contemporaries, late medieval and early modern poetics, the history of science, cultural materialism, and media studies. He's here today to discuss his book, Blotted Lines, Early Modern English Literature and the Poetics of Discomposition. Adar Noor Desai, welcome to the History of Literature. Hi, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. 
So I suppose we should start with Shakespeare. There's a famous uh, exchange in concerning blotted lines. I guess it's sort of an exchange among some fellow actors and uh, and Ben Johnson. So what happened there? Yeah, so the title of the book comes from this this response by Ben Johnson to the compilers of Shakespeare's first folio, which of course was published after his death. And in the prefatory letter to the first folio, Hemings and Condell, um, the compilers say that when they looked at the papers of Shakespeare's plays, they received from him no blots in the writing. And Ben Johnson, a little while after the publication, would retort that this mythologizing bit of information about Shakespeare, that he was such an effortless writer um, that he never had to correct himself or blot anything, was kind of ridiculous. Uh, and Ben Johnson famously retorted, would he had blotted a thousand, which is sort of his enviousness speaking. So I start with this little anecdote about Ben Johnson and these players because it gets at the sort of mythologizing around authorship that attends Shakespeare yeah. and then all constructions of authorship that have sort of happened in his wake. Right. Okay. So a lot of people had cited, I think, with Hemings and Condell and took them at their word and like Virginia Woolf, for example. And what did that mean to them? Why did it matter to them that Shakespeare never blotted a line? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question because I think it probably meant different things at different points in history. Throughout what was continuous between Hemings and Condell and people like Woolf is this idea of authorship and where poetry comes from. And so for the early moderns, and Shakespeare's contemporaries, there was this conception of poetry being a divine gift. And the Fuhrer Poeticus from, from um, the sort of classical model of poetry being a kind of divine madness. And so for Hemings and Condell, they were drawing on that kind of tradition, which Shakespeare and his contemporaries were ready to accept as an, a characterization of how they wrote as a sort of self-aggrandizement. And then over time and through the Romantics, the idea of divine gift was replaced or adapted into a model of genius, mm. right? This idea mm -hmm. of the, the innate authorial genius, somebody who has, has preternatural gifts that may be divine, but may, may also be a testament to their innate singularity. And so for somebody like Wolf, she would say things like, he was the only poet who ever got his thoughts expressed completely, that his mind was incandescent and untroubled by the bothers of the workaday world. So while they're saying something similar about the exalted position of the author as this person that is able to produce flawlessly because the language just flows through them. Um, they were coming maybe from different traditions of that construction of authorship. And you even say, I think that Jonathan Bate said that genius was a category invented to account for what was peculiar about Shakespeare. Yeah, I love that line because it, it really flips the script uh, in some ways on how we think about the equation of Shakespeare with genius. Right, right. The other model that we have is someone like a James Joyce, and they they almost declare themselves to be kind of monkishly devoted to literature. And you hear that they they stagger out of their out of their little hovel and meet right. someone on the street and say, "I just spent twelve hours, you know, changing the words around in a single sentence in order to capture what was what was correct." And we think, "Oh, someone with that kind of dedication and that devotion, and that's what it takes to produce." A, a work of genius. And Shakespeare's is the opposite of that spectrum. It's sort of the 
almost as if uh, someone else is speaking through him or his mind is is just capturing pure thought. And I think it was uh, Hemings and Condell had said, his mind and hand went together and what he thought he uttered with easiness. It, it's really a, a, a different way of looking at art and, and literature in particular. Yeah. There's a great essay that was also formative to my thinking about this by Linda Brodkey called Modernism in the Scenes of Writing, in which she engages with this image that we have of authorship as a poor poet sitting in a dark garret working by the thin light of a candle, right? The solitary communion with one's own creativity or with flashes of inspiration and, and sort of walling oneself off from the world. And I think that that does share something in common with the singularity of the author figure as somehow, as Wolf describes it, untroubled by the concerns of the workaday world, able to transcend their material circumstances to reach a transhistorically beautiful kind of art object. Even people like Joyce were helping construct the idea of the author as somebody who labors, even when they do labor, to transcend the world. That they are, yeah, that there are these singular kinds of people that have gifts that not that are above the common person's achievement. Right. Maybe only a genius would see how essential it was to spend 12 hours and all the different possibilities right. and, and the the way that a, a sentence could or could not sound right if you were getting it. But was this conception of Shakespeare accurate? Does What does modern scholarship tend to think about whether he blotted lines or didn't? Yeah, that, I mean, um, so I, I just declare, I think, in the third or fourth paragraph of my book, this conception is a myth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a myth in a variety of ways. For one thing, we don't actually have that many or really any surefire examples of his papers that convince right. his mind and his hand going together. Although we do have a, a page from a collaboratively authored play, Sir Thomas More, uh, with lines that we think are written in Shakespeare's hand, uh, that, and this is a document that is worked over by many hands where there's lots of crossroads and strikeouts, but we, also know that he revised his own plays during his own lifetime. We see evidence of it in plays like Love's Labor's Lost. We see errors in plays where there are characters that are not supposed to be there. And in that respect, he might have used an editor. He might have been more careful. Mm-hmm. But it's also the case, and I think this is the broader story about authorship, that whether he was effortless, whether he was preternaturally good, and some people are just good improvisers, good at writing off the cuff. They, they process a lot in their heads and then they, they are able to, to turn it out and onto the page without much issue. There are people like that, but it's also very much the case that the texts that we have have been worked over by generations of scholars and actors and we've uh, adapted or cut or amended his plays to suit our purposes over time. Mm-hmm. So whenever we receive one of his texts, it has been blotted, whether they were by his hand or not. Not that he didn't contribute anything or that, that the works aren't brilliant. It's that the idea that they arrived in a in a perfect, pristine condition, I think, undercuts how much labor actually is involved in the way we access these literary works. And in the way he, as a person of the theater, might have, uh, would have been in particular responsive to 
audience reactions or or feedback from the actors or just what he saw in rehearsals and so on uh, it was more almost more of a collaborative effort i suppose they're they're citing you know the manuscripts that they believe to be written by shakespeare and kind of noting how how fluid they look but that might have been at the end of a collaborative process rather than you know something that shakespeare handed out to the actors to read verbatim I think that's 100% true. I think that has to be the way we conceive of how the plays were written. It's part because we know to some extent how parts were distributed to members of a playing company and they would be retranscribed individually and actors would have a couple of days to learn their individual roles. And we know sometimes plays went on the road and they had a fewer number of actors. So even from a logistical standpoint, plays would need to be revised to suit the present circumstances of the performance venue uh, and things like that. And it just strikes me as a much more believable account of how he wrote. He wrote for the actors that he had. He wrote for the circumstances or the time of year that he was, that the play would be put on and they would edit and adjust things. And so the texts that we have now are a snapshot of that play as a living, breathing object that he participated in, in constructing. Mm. Right. So are people, have people been resistant to this idea? It seems like it would change our conception of Shakespeare to think of him as not this genius who's letting the words flow out of his pen, but somebody who's working a bit harder than that and, and maybe making some mistakes and then correcting them. What has that done to our conception of Shakespeare? Yeah, I think the interesting thing about this idea is that it's not new. I start the book with it and I don't engage with it for much longer than the first third of the introduction because it's not a new story. I'm not the one that has, I've been, this is something that I've been taught, right? Mm. One of the things you learn when you study this literature is how materially grounded and complex the pathways of transmission of these texts were. What's complicated is, or what's interesting is how that idea has not really reached the public conception of these works. Mm. He is the remains a singular author. He is the you know, emblematic of what literary genius looks like, at least in, in Western literary culture. And I am interested in where what we know about how he actually worked and what the mythology in the public sphere is doing, where that breakage between those two occurs. That's why I a lot of my work goes back to the classroom. It is I think it's important for people like Shakespeare scholars and teachers of middle school and high school. And when public, when scholars like Stephen Greenblatt talk to the public, they emphasize to some extent that this is not a divinely gifted thing that is a universal work that reaches all people. A lot of people worked hard to make this thing accessible to students in middle school classrooms to make it propagate around the world and be meaningful in all these different ways. That Shakespeare is something that we build together rather than something that we pay reverence to because it is something that arrived to this world perfect. Shifting that view of what these texts are, I think, can shift how we engage with them and how they might continue to be meaningful because if they, are, they just belong to one man and his brilliance, then they become less accessible to new readers. Mm hmm. Okay, so that is a nice transition because I want to pivot to what your book is really about, uh, which is not just, you know, was Shakespeare, uh, did he blot out lines or not? But what can we tell from analyzing the blotted lines of him and other writers as well? 
So let's start with your title. And you mm-hmm. use the word discomposition. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So um, that word is doing a couple of different things in my title. One, one thing it's doing is that it's situating the book alongside composition studies and the way we teach writing mm-hmm. in the modern mm-hmm. academy, right? Thinking about the work of writing. But discomposition is this word that has many different layers, um, one of which is that it's a troubling of settled forms, right? It is a, a system that was once in order thrown into disarray that we would call that discomposed. We would also say that somebody who has become perturbed or affectively uh, agitated, somebody who's uneasy is discomposed, which is aligned with that thrown into or, like organizational disarray, but on an emotional and affective level. We would also say that when somebody in a position of authority is ousted from office, they have been discomposed. And so I like that there is this formal, affective, and political valence to this term that allows me to think about writing on all three layers, right? The, the, the questioning or dismantling of certain kinds of authority, the feeling of making a startling discovery, which often feels like making a mistake, and the idea that we have to reconfigure the way that we've understood certain things to work uh, and rewrite the forms by which we understand um, what we're doing in order to proceed. So yeah, the word just kind of, it, it's, it's kind of a fraught word, uh, which is mm-hmm. why I guess I gave it this prominent position in, in the title of the book, but it really sort of captures the fact that I want to think about writing in all of these different ways. So if if the model we've been talking about is a genius who's sitting down and the words are just flowing out of his pen and it turns out to be, you know, the some of the greatest writings in the history of the language and so on, discomposition would be those moments where the pen doesn't move and you stop and and you you think twice or you crumple up the page or you cross things out or you you rethink things that you thought were finished and that kind of thing is that sort of is that a good summary that's yeah that is a great summary it's a, a much more concrete version of, yeah. of what i meant to say that I <laughs> well i benefited from reading your book <laughs> so that brings me to the next question which is how does discomposition have a poetics what kind of things are you looking for in the discomposition that will give you some insight into what it is that you're trying to see? This is a great question, but I have not been asked directly before. Um, and I think it will be helpful to start by explaining what I mean by poetics. Mm-hmm. Um, so by poetics, I mean not the works of poetry, um, like poetry about discomposition. Uh, I mean, poetics as a way of making, as a way of understanding how things are made. Um, So I want to think about poetry as an art of making or imagining or or fantasizing or uh, positing alternate worlds. And I want to suggest that one of the ways that poetry makes is by routing itself, by directing the pen towards experiences of perturbation, of dis, uh, disruption, of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to think of poetry, especially Renaissance poetry and the sonnet, as formal, as obeying certain rules. But any 
good sonnet. Any sonnet that is interesting will have disrupted those rules, will have um, metrical irregularities, will have a complicated metaphor that works only for, for one quatrain rather than the entirety of it. There, there are ways that sonnets and poems posit a set of rules so that you can rub up against those rules in order to think differently about a topic. And I wanted to think in this book about how early modern poets steered into the skids of the hard parts of writing in order to write poetry that let them think about making new new and different worlds. Mm. And a quote I've jotted down here is, inspired to unmake their poems so that they might remake them. These poets welcomed discomposition because it catalyzed ongoing thinking and learning. Thank you for picking that sentence up because it also communicates how much the book and my approach to this literature is about the importance of the process, the doing of poetic writing, more than it is the text that we have. To some extent, I think of the texts as we have, the sonnets, as invitations to continue thinking. And the way we do that thinking is through writing about them, writing in response to them, writing poems of our own. This is, to some extent, how they viewed poetic writing, not as little tokens that they could memorize to recite, but as, but they, I mean, they would do that, certainly, but they would also mine other people's poetry for lines, for ideas, for techniques that they could bring to their own writing. A common thing is that early modern readers read with a pen in one hand. And so I think there is value humanistically, philosophically, politically to committing to the work of trying to write a good poem. It doesn't matter if the poem ends up being good. The doing is the important part. Uh, experiencing right. this composition is the important part. Right. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back and we'll hear uh, who exactly you were looking at and what the examples are of this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we are back. So, Professor Desai... Where does early modern English literature begin and end in your study? So 
That's an interesting question. Uh, I basically try to cover about 75 years of English literary history here. I start sort of in the middle of Queen Elizabeth's reign with poet George Gascoigne, who was sort of the first very prominent poet in Elizabeth's court. He wrote the first guide to English poetics that was printed. And I proceed through roughly chronologically through a series of poets, major and minor. Um, there are five that I cover in the book, the last of which was writing into the early 17th century. But I try to think of them as a cohort of poets interested in the same kinds of problems, mapping the, to some extent, Shakespeare's career, maybe a decade or two before and after, as this, as this pivotal moment in the development of what we now understand as Renaissance literature or early modern English literature. Right. Now, if you had been studying a, a 20th century writer, let's say, you probably would have gone to some library where they had boxes and boxes of draft materials and, and uh, you know, the, the paper would have been voluminous for you to go through. What kind of sources were you able to access to do your study? So I was very lucky to receive some fellowships to study at the Folger Shakespeare Library yeah. and the uh -huh. Huntington Library. And I think the most revelatory encounter that I had there was the what's called the Commonplace Book, the, the Sibley Subtle Commonplace Book, which is the manuscript volume that contains almost all of the poetry of Lady Anne Subtle, the topic, the subject of the, the center of my fourth chapter, which is on editing. Because that book allowed me to think about the number of hands, the household scribe, her husband, her own editorial interventions that went into writing a poem. And while that poem, well, that collection of poetry was never published uh, or printed in her lifetime or really until the 1990s, it captured the collaborative effort of composing and getting a poem down onto the paper on the number of blocks and, and, and strike throughs and interlines that are on the pages were really formative for me to, to visualize what writing must have actually been like. And then I was able to think about how difficult it is to even read this kind of manuscript. You have to have specialist training in paleography to read some of this language. You need editorial help. I needed the editorial help of uh, Jean Clean, who edited that 1995 volume to sort of parse some of the language. And so the layers of mediation between us and these texts is also a kind of rewriting, revising that I wanted to attend to in the book um, to think about poetry as collaborative labor, but also transhistorical collaborative labor. Were you able to draw any general conclusions about this time period, or were the discoveries pretty much uh, particularized to individual writers? I think there, while each chapter is about an individual writer and an individual phase of the writing process, let's say, revising, invention, editing, etc., I do think one of the, the core takeaways for a general conception of early modern poetics is to recognize the degree to which labor and collaboration and revision and sort of constant returning to the scene of invention animated everyone's work. When somebody sat down to write a poem, they, they did not see it as beginning and completing a task. 
they saw it more as participating in a conversation because the way that they imagined their audiences taking up their poems would have resembled the way that they took up poems in order to write their own. And so I think that recognizing the encounter with the doing of poesy as entering a conversation or even a dispute in the way that they were taught to debate rhetoric in grammar school helps me see things in other poets across the era and how they are going about their work. I see conversation rather than, let's say, a, a straightforward lyric eye talking about their subjective experience. Do you get the sense that they're they're just revising things to try to make it better? Or I'm thinking, I've been reading a lot of Emily Dickinson and reading about a lot mm -hmm. of the different versions of her poems. And a lot of times the, the critics will sort of say, well, she uh, sent a different version of this to the publisher because she knew that he would not accept, you know, her, the version that she had been writing and rewriting for herself. And she made it shorter or she changed some of the imagery or something. Or, or it might say uh, she revised this after she got a letter from one of her trusted confidants who didn't like the way, you know, didn't found it confusing or something like that. Do you, is that the kind of uh, thing you're able to see in these drafts? Uh, and can you get a sense of, are they just trying to say, well, I, I wrote a sonnet, but I want to make it better? Or is it more of a reworking? You almost make it seem like they are trying to get at some new truth or, or some kind of you know, revisit that moment of creation by revising in a almost a uh, not just a oh I made a mistake so let me fix it kind of way. It's a really interesting question because I do think they would return to a poem in order to make it better, but I think better meant different things at different times. Mm -hmm. um, and so to sort of clarify what I mean, um, my chapter on revision and the poet the sort of lesser known poet John Davis of Hereford, the second most famous John Davis of his era. There's a third John Davis who we looked up to. He was, he would, he would write very candidly about the revision process and how he would blot and interline and erase whole conceits because they were faulty or, or unsatisfying or that the meter was wrong. So when he reflected on these things, he would point to certain formal characteristics that he would try to hit. But I think he also understood that the formal characteristics of a poem were not the only thing that made a poem compelling or interesting. He was, in his day job, a teacher of formal handwriting. So it's really interesting to read him talking about how to make a precise calligraphic letter that is elegantly shaped and formed, and at the same time, try to write a poem that resists perfect execution. And when he talks about both at the same time, he would, he would confess to sacrificing the elegance of his hand in order to free himself up to experiment poetically. When they talked about making a poem better, I think they were thinking about suited to a specific end or specific context. Davis has a poem where he talks about sending his poems off to the publisher because in spite of his reason telling him not to, in part because of the pull of fame and the need for money uh, and to get his name out there, right? Recognizing that his poems were not quite ready, but sending them out anyway, because there are different exigencies 
upon the writer. And sometimes better means done or completed or sent out, right? But sometimes better means I am satisfied with it, but perhaps I will not be satisfied with something tomorrow that I am today. And so better shifts in that, in that approach to writing. Um, right. Did you find that these people from this era are doing something different from other eras? Or were you showing that the way that they worked is similar to what we know of you know, contemporary writers? That's a great question. I think, I, without making too many historical generalizations that will make my uh, colleagues <laughs> sort of upset with how I characterize <laughs> other centuries, I think to some extent, writing has always and is a difficult thing, right? It is challenging as an activity. That is why it, we can make much of or, or mythologize the idea that somebody found it easy, right? And make him our literary hero. I think because we recognize that it's challenging and, and revision and blotting and, and things like that are part of it. I think what makes this period interesting to study from the perspective of the work of writing as opposed to other periods is the emergence of a broader public to which these poets might address themselves. The idea that we've reached a critical mass of literacy in England and a certain degree of diversity. Obviously, there are not that many women writers in this period, and there are not that many people from different social classes who are writing poetry, although there are some. But there is a broader reading public for poetry that poets now have in mind or have fears of when they are setting about their work. And this changes the relationship, I think, between the poet and the page in some ways, imagining the audience who might reject one's work or might prefer banal mediocrity over daring adventurous poetry. A lot of poets have anxieties about the, the how the, the public will devour their labors and spit them back out without much thought. And so I think that anxiety of writing, not just for an audience that you can anticipate, but for a world, makes the way that they express their anxieties particularly interesting to me, and I think relevant to how we might teach students to think about writing today. Mm. Well, that's really interesting, because to kind of return to Shakespeare, the one thing that you would guess that the Virginia Wolfs of the world and all the people who came later would have uh, wanted to think about as they thought about Shakespeare is that if he wrote with this kind of constant flow, that one of the things he would be free from is the voices of critics in his mind, that it, mm -hmm. he would just be you know, channeling poetry in this pure sense, but not thinking about, you know, the people who didn't like his last play or the people who would be looking for a happy ending, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like these people already were showing this, even in this era, that that was something that is just part of being a writer who's writing for an audience. Yeah. Yeah, I think... The text of Shakespeare's that I engage with most in the book, in the fifth chapter, the last chapter, which is on performance anxiety and perfectionism, is Love's Labor's Lost. And I think that play gives us, at least gives me some sense of the fact that Shakespeare was concerned with 
how publics would respond to artwork and to plays in particular, because this is a play in which a group of very educated, well-spoken pedants have a hard time communicating with the people that they want to court, the, the, the ladies that are visiting the, the Prince of Navarre. And so in the play, there are all these scenes of stage fright. There's even a play within a play where a prologue comes out and attempts to announce himself to the ladies and the ladies turn their backs to him and he falls apart. And this sort of dynamic of meeting an audience that is not receptive to your artifice, to your canned lines or taffeta phrases, causing the speakers to crumple, I think is indicative of a dynamic that happened on the early modern stage regularly. The, the idea of the prologue being pale-faced and afraid was a trope that many playwrights used, but they would also talk in these prologues about how everyone comes to the theater with a book in, of expectations in their head and how the hissing audience can put actors out of their parts. And so as an actor, Shakespeare would have first-hand experience of what it is like to confront a public that may not be paying attention to you. And as a playwright, he would have the experience of seeing his play go out on stage for the first time and it's just not landing, perhaps. Mm. And so I think he is exercising those anxieties in Love's Labor's Loss as a play in which the men have to learn how to listen as well as talk. They have to understand that a just prosperity lies in the ear of uh, who tells it rather than the person who makes it, right? Um, this is where the play leaves off. It is an unsatisfying, unresolved conclusion because time has to be taken for the people that are most like the performing men that Shakespeare would have affiliated himself with are told, you need to understand how to adapt yourself and listen to circumstances. So I do think even if the words came to him easily, he was looking at what happens next when you share those words with somebody else. Mm, right. And if we are to be human beings in communication with other human beings, we always have to keep in mind the listeners and the way our words may seem perfect to us, but be misinterpreted or not have the effect that we will assume that they might have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, Adar Noor Desai, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Finally today, Lara Vetter, after she told us all about the incredible life of the modernist poet and icon HD, I asked Lara this special question. Okay, we're here with Lara Vetter, expert in the writings of the modernist poet HD. Lara, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Hmm, that's such a dark question. I love it. Um, you know, I immediately thought of the last book that HD ever held in her Ooh, hands. Okay. <laughs> when, I, when I read, it was it, it was her own book. Actually, it was the page proofs for her her epic Helen in Egypt. At that point, she'd suffered a stroke. 
you know, she was, uh, she couldn't communicate anymore. It was very, very difficult. It was clear that she was slipping away. Um, but Briar thought seeing her work was, you know, being pushed into print was going to rally her a little or maybe just, mm. you know, offer her mm-hmm. some solace or some happiness at the end. But no, I'm not, I'm not going to choose that. You're not going to choose that one. <laughs> I'm not going to choose that one. I'm not, I'm not going to choose an HD book either, I think. I, I don't want to, ch- this is a, such a hard question to ask, but I, I just don't know if I want to pick something that I know that well. I mean, I think mm. that I would want to read something that feels like it wants familiar you would want that kind of comfort, I guess, if you were dying, and right. this is it. <laughs> right. But right. yet, I would. I think I would like to think of myself even then as wanting to encounter something new too. So something that's so rich that it rewards a rereading. Like so, I've read it, but I haven't written about it. You know, yeah. I don't want to yeah. pick up somebody that I've written about. So I think it would be poetry. I'm not somebody who makes top ten lists, so I, this is a kind of hard thing for me to narrow it down to one. I, I'll confess that I'm I'm trying to decide between two. Okay. <laughs> it's a toss up. It's a toss up between the complete works of Sylvia Plath and the complete works of Marianne Moore, and oh. I don't know how to make that choice. So maybe you can help, but I have no idea oh. if I can make that choice. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> I I would hate to to try to choose one or the other as well but let's talk about what you would get out of the two of them so what yeah. w- what do you think you would appreciate about Sylvia Plath I mean I, I love Plath's poetry I think I, I love Plath's poetry as a teenager because I was a teenage girl growing mm. up when I did mm-hmm. and that's what we did but mm-hmm. but I but I think I, you know I, but not because it's so dark well maybe because it's dark but not because it's depressing for me I really appreciate Plath's sense of dark comedy we yeah. don't really think of her as a comedic writer but it's there you yeah. know when yeah. I teach Lady Lazarus and I try to show students like look at these comic rhymes it's you know it, it's she she had a way to, of being very dark and very funny at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like to teach her novel The Bell Jar for the same reason. It's it, the satire. It's just amazing. And like, who else could so effectively stage a thwarted suicide attempt as total farce? I mean, it is. She she just I, I like that combination of dark and humor. Mary Moore's not like that, of course. You know, she yeah. she like Plath has really intricately crafted poems, maybe more so. You know, more revised even letters that she was sending to her closest family members and friends. She revised her poems even after that they were, they were published. She revised and revised. She was so careful about language. And, it, you know, and, and there's a payoff for that. She has beautiful poems. I, I like so much the poem The Pangolin, which is how I was introduced to, to Marianne Moore when I was in college. I thought, what an amazing thing to build a poem around this animal that's so fascinating, but we don't know anything about. And to give us such beautiful description of its habits, its appearance, you know, the way it moves. And yet midway through the poet writes, I I hope I get this right. I think to explain grace requires a curious hand and sends us off into like a philosophical contemplation about our position as humans in the world occupied by animals and our tendency to view them through our own frameworks and the kind of radical alterity of the animal to the human. Like you're just in a different place than you began. And I just remember thinking that was what a, what a masterful thing um, that she had done. And so I don't know which, which I would choose, but it would be one, or maybe you would let me have two. <laughs> I will let you have two. And I'm going to tell you that from what you've just described, I'm going to recommend you do Marianne Moore second to last and Sylvia Plath last. 
Okay. <laughs> why? <laughs> I have to ask why. Yeah, but why? Well, I'm thinking because I was going to ask this as a follow-up. Do you think you're identifying with these poets or that you're learning from them? Oh, definitely learning from them. Yeah. I don't think I would I don't I don't think I would put myself at that level. I mean I, I do have a dark sense of humor and I do I am interested in animals and science the way that, that more is, but no, I am not identifying with I think I admire them so much and I learn so much from them. Yeah. But I think there is something about Plath that kind of you know, lets us in and sort of shares that humor. I, I think I would I would want to do all my learning. And then in the end, I think I would want someone who I feel like <laughs> I'm, I'm sharing a moment with and we're sort of confiding. And I'm thinking, you know, she was here first and, and I'm coming second, but that's okay. I, I think that makes sense. And certainly the topics of many of her poems would fit very well yeah. with coming yeah, to terms right. with, with death <laughs> and the darkness and the, yeah, the violence, the darkness of, of humanity. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Laura Vetter, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Well, thanks so much for having me. Okay. There we go. That's going to wrap things up for this Thursday edition of the History of Literature. We'll be back Monday with, I think, some Virgil. That poet who was so much more than just a guide to Dante's Inferno. Although, hey, that's not a bad gig for a pagan. A little a, li- <laughs> a little posthumous glory that Dante threw his way. Posthumous glory for a wonderful ancient Roman poet and pagan. And I think we'll have an expert on stories and storytelling coming here on Thursday. So that's a good week. Please do join us for those episodes if you have the time. I'll be here anyway, leaving my lonely light on, open for business and waiting for customers. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you, hopefully, next time.
Thank you.